As we continue in our walk through 1 Samuel, we should always keep in mind the major divisions of this book. Chapters 1 through 7 were mainly focused on Samuel. And now in chapters 8 through 14, these are mainly focused on Saul. And in chapters 15 through 31, we'll mainly be focused on David. God provided in his grace the prophet Samuel at a very, very critical time in Israel's history. Despite all of God's provisions and deliverances and steadfast love, his people continued to serve other gods drifting in and out of the cycles that we see especially highlighted in the book of Judges. First, they would forsake the Lord, and then God would chastise them by raising up foreign powers to actually oppress them which usually brought the people to see their need to finally cry out for deliverance, after which God raised up a deliverer for them called the judge. And Israel would enjoy a refreshing rest in their God for a while, but it didn't take long for their hearts to drift away from God again, which kicked in another cycle. Uh, forsaking, and then chastisement, and then crying out, and then deliverance. Samuel led Israel's as God's prophet, priest, and the last of the judges. Then in chapter 8, we see people demanding to have a king like all the other nations. They wanted a change in their system, a change of government, if you will, which really means they wanted a king to be in God's place, a human king to be in God's place. Samuel was the man that God used to anoint the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. Saul was the king that God gave them first, And most interesting is the fact that God gave the people of Israel exactly the king that they asked for. Which in this case, not really a good thing. A worldly man who looked and acted like he was a leader but was not a true spiritual leader. Saul's policies and behavior would actually hinder the welfare of Israel. In other words, God used Israel's own request for a worldly king as a means of punishing them and showing them their true need of the future spiritual king, the Messiah. Saul's reign actually acted as a barrier separating Israel from from God's best for them. Does everybody understand what that means? He lets us sometimes 
get what we want to recognize how much we really need him when we find out what we want doesn't meet our innermost needs at all. And that's what's going on here. In fact, if you think about the Old Testament in general, it's this same theme over and over and over and over again as we look at Israel's history. If you're able, would you please stand? Today we're going to look at chapter 9 only, which is the first part of a four-part section in this book. And I'm going to read the whole chapter, which is only 27 verses. I think we'll make it. But it's good to get all these kind of all together before we begin. 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you, and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says come true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I'll give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met a young woman coming out to draw water. They met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He has just come now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you'll find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. 
As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out towards them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I'll let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they've been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they came down from the high place into the city... A bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The introduction to Saul's story in the first two verses of chapter 9 here give us some very important information about Saul which we need to remember for quite a while in this book. First, we meet Kish from the tribe of Benjamin, a man of wealth. And then we meet Kish's son, Saul. And it's very clear that his physical appearance is what is striking. Very handsome, very tall, No one more handsome in Israel. No one taller. The perfect candidate. Just what they wanted. 
the rest of the story up to the point where Saul is actually proclaimed king can be divided into four main parts and that'll help us get what God wants us to get. Today we will cover chapter 9, the first of these four parts. And the first part down through verse 27 at the end of this chapter is about God's providence. Really? Yeah, God's providence. Chapter 9 begins with everyday life. Donkeys. Donkeys that have a problem. They're lost. Normal, ordinary life. Somehow they get away and they're lost. Saul and a young man, a servant, are sent by Kish to find them. They travel in sort of a clock, counterclockwise circle through some tough country. Ephraim's hill country. Shalishah and Shaalim and then back to Benjamin. But they didn't find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul was ready to give up and go back home. But the young man knew of a man of God from a city right where they were. Maybe this man of God, this seer, this prophet, could help them find the donkeys. Saul is concerned that he doesn't have a present to give to the man of God, the prophet. The young man with him has a quarter of a shekel of silver, so Saul likes the idea now. They meet some women who tell them the seer is just ahead of Saul and the servant. So Saul and the servant go up to the city and immediately run into the man of God without even knowing it. The text tells us it's Samuel, but Saul doesn't know till verse 19. This also means that we know the city is most surely Samuel's hometown of Ramah. A lot of details here about them wandering around trying to find the donkeys. Why does God do it this way? Is that important? Yeah, it's important. Because it helps us understand our own lives a whole lot better. Which we'll try to wrap up as we go through this. You know, some... Historians say that this gift to the man of God, the prophet, the seer, was a normal custom, and it was, and you know, you still see some of this in that region of the world, especially today. Other people argue that it was Saul trying to buy off, you know, uh, the guy that has the word from God in order that he could accomplish his mission. No real clear-cut answer to that. Probably a little heavier on the side of it was the custom of the day. But if we look at this progression of everyday kind of stuff in our lives, in this looking for the donkey's adventure, what do we see here? Well, 
Have you had a couple of days like this? Wandering donkeys, the failure to find the donkeys, being in this land of Zuf at the, at the time Saul got tired of the search, the, the servant's suggestion to find the man of God who lives there. Oh, I've got a little bit of silver, a gift for him. Running into the women coming out of Rama to draw water who say, Oh, he's, he's right up there. He's just ahead of you. Anybody identify with any of that? Notice that if you jump straight from verse 14 to 18, you don't miss anything. It doesn't, you don't even know there's a break. Let me read 14 and then go directly to 18 and 19 and see if you think anything's weird. You won't. There's not. So if they went up, so they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered, Saul, I'm the seer. Perfect flow. But there is an intrusion here. That's really the key to the whole passage in verses 15, 16, and 17. This is the behind the scenes view. This is God wanting to tell us something that He is doing that only Samuel knows about because He's telling Samuel something. But Saul, who is the character that all this stuff is happening to, doesn't have a clue. Now, most of us can identify with that. What is going on? There's no purpose in this. I wanted to do this today. I thought this is what I was supposed to do, and now I've got to run all over town trying to find whatever. Remember, we may not like donkeys, but donkeys were vital to agricultural societies for numerous reasons. It's like a truck company losing part of their fleet because of some employees that are whacked. It's vital to this operation of this wealthy man in his agricultural pursuits. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. This intrusion is actually the key to this whole passage. This is what God wants us to see. The story in chapter 9, up to this intrusion part in verses 15 and 16 and 17, is just so ordinary that you may wonder whether God is involved at all here kind of like we do during most normal days. Ah, you see where we're going, don't you? Yeah, that's where God wants us to go. But there is no doubt that God is involved because of the intrusion of verses 15, 16, and 17. That God is involved and has ordained these events. This is nothing less than God's own commentary in his word about his providential work in the ordinary and common activities of life to accomplish his purposes, especially in his plan of redemption. What is providence? Yeah, it's a town 
in the Northeast. Why did they name it that? Because the people that founded that town knew a lot more about their Bibles and their faith than most people do now. It's God's way of providing for the needs of his people. Providence, providing for. Now we can expand that definition because what we see here in our passage sounds a little bit more like this. That wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way Yahweh has of ruling his world and sustaining his people. And his doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff in our lives, or even the bias of our wills. Had to share that quote with you. That's a great expanded definition of providence. What's the secret that God reveals here about what he's doing? Look at 15, 16, and 17. First part of verse 16. The secret is, hey, Samuel, I will send you a man. God tells us that he is sending Saul. He is designating Saul as Israel's first king. Does he tell us why he's doing such a thing? Yes, he does. He says in the next part of verse 16 that this chosen man, Saul, shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For, why? I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. In other words, God wants to show his people once again his mercy. This does not just come out of the blue as an aberration of the way he works. Think about what we've already learned in this book. For example, when the people continued to be led by the evil priest, who happened to be Eli's sons, who constantly tempted them to also live in evil rebellion against the Lord, God demonstrated his mercy to his people. How? By raising up Samuel. Through a woman named Hannah. Wasn't that a great story? Are you getting the messages about how God works in these things? God demonstrated his mercy to his people, raising up a new prophet, priest, and judge, Samuel, and then getting rid of Eli's evil sons. See, we zero right into the tough stuff, the judgment, the condemnation, dealing with it, but the whole thing was a demonstration of God's mercy to his people and getting rid of the evil so that they would have a man after his own heart who would lead them. Don't miss that. That's the whole point. 
when the people gathered at Mizpah in chapter 7, see if you remember that, and repented of their presumption regarding the ark, thinking that it was some magical piece of furniture that if they just brought it into the battle, they'd win. And the exact opposite happened. And they were also, we learned there, still holding on to their false gods. What did God do? God immediately gave a powerful demonstration of his mercy and grace when he routed the Philistines who had heard that they were all gathering there and while they were all in one place, they repented, confessed their sins and God routed them. And then the Israelite soldiers chased them after God did the work. Well, is that all? No. When all the elders of Israel, many of the people too, gathered at Ramah to demand that Samuel appoint for them a king in chapter 8. See that scene? Here's a godly leader and they're demanding a king, demanding a king. God acted in mercy by setting apart a future deliverer who would deal with many Philistine issues. Did you catch that? And when the people assemble at Mizpah in chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, which we will get to soon, to proclaim Saul as king, even as the Lord points out to them that they are choosing a man, in essence, to be God for them, God, in his mercy, still uses that king, Saul, to deliver them from a guy named Hahash, and then later Jonathan, Saul's son, delivers them from the Philistines. And we know some of those stories. Mercy, mercy. Mercy, mercy. Oh, but the God of the Bible is not merciful. That's in the New Testament. Oh, no. Patience. Patience. Patience and mercy is what we see in the Old Testament more than anything else in God dealing with his people. Isn't this amazing? Israel's rejection over and over again of the God who delivered them out of Egypt, and that's why they recount all the events all the time. Israel's rejection does not paralyze God's providential working. Yes, God sees Israel's idolatry in her demand for a king. We saw that in chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. But he also hears the distress and their cry for relief. In chapter 9, verse 16, we just read. In other words, if we can put it in more common vernacular, Israel's stupidity cannot wither Yahweh's compassions. Another quote. 
there should be hope rising within your heart about this point if you realize your own heart and you're going, again, again. We must not trivialize Israel's sin, not at all. God doesn't. He didn't. He won't. But we must not minimize God's mercy. Notice also that this contention is supported by God's by God describing Israel three times. If you look in verse 16, what way? How does he describe them? Same phrase, three times, right here. My people. Do you still feel like claiming one of your own when they're rebelling? God, my people, my people, my people. And this shows that however rebellious his people might be, God had no intention of relinquishing ownership of or his love for them. Now, it's one thing to recognize God's providence in the lives of the big characters of the Bible, which are pretty obvious, as we've just seen, or the major church figures down through history. But the question for all of us is, does God providentially direct only the major episodes in his kingdom? Or does he sway or does his sway extend to the individual lives of his subject? Yours, mine. The answer should be obvious, but you may not really agree with that at times when you're in the middle of the stuff. True? Do you like order? Or do you deal with donkeys gone? Plans disrupted. Life extended beyond what you thought it should be. Problems compounding. Too much to handle. Etc., etc., etc. Do you see what we are saying here? This is what God is getting across here. There's a couple of proverbs that speak to this. Actually, there's a whole bunch of them, but... The two big ones, these, these are highly recognized as being the, the, the verses that are plastered in our homes. On the refrigerator, the, you know, right behind the sink. I always wondered why, why my, the, the women in, in so many families that I know and love ha, have those verses plastered right behind the kitchen sink. And I almost would like to ask how many of y'all had them plastered there. And there's a reason, right, guys? It's because they spend more time at the kitchen sink than anybody else. And so they need to have that there that says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or, A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Stuff that we need to remember. Surely God's providence is the privilege of each and every genuine child of God. No matter how common our circumstances may seem to be. 
You know, we live in a time, one of the only times, really extended times in the history of the world where people live on the mantra of fulfill your dream. You can do anything you want to do. How many people down through history do you think actually believe that because of the commonness of their lives and the responsibilities that they had? And you couldn't just walk away from them and do whatever you wanted to do. We may not even be privy to the details or the secret behind what God is doing. In fact, that's usually true, is it not? Which is so maddening to us. Especially if we live by the rule that I want to understand everything that happens to me. In fact, God, I demand it. And if you don't tell me, I'm going to take my marbles and go my own way. I'll show you. Sounds like Israel. Sounds like my heart. Probably your heart. But even though we may not be privy to those details, we may see traces of what he's been doing. True. Most of the time later, or even much later, as we look back. Which is why we should learn to ask the elderly people who have walked with God for a long time what their stories are. And specifically this part of the story. You know, one of the best times that my family has ever enjoyed was talking to Mary Troth and Riley when he was still living. How did y'all meet? What a story. What did you do? How did you end up in Canyon? They ran out of money as they were going somewhere else, and they stayed. And he used his pharmaceutical degree to, to have a business there, prosper, raise a family, and bless all of us. Normal, everyday stuff. If we look back, what do we see? Can you see God's hand? He encourages us every once in a while by connecting the dots because some of us, like me, are really slow at doing that. Oh, really? Wow. If that's so, then we should keep walking faithfully now with the Lord through the ordinary circumstances so common to all of us that he's given us to do. In verse 17, God says something else to Samuel about Saul. He says, here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now, I know that different versions have different words, but here the English Standard Version scores because this is exactly what it means. Restrain means more than just to rule or govern. The word is almost always used in a negative way, implying imprisonment or hindrance. This is why I said earlier that Saul's policies and behavior would hinder the welfare of Israel. 
meaning that God would use Israel's own request for a worldly king as a means of actually punishing them, disciplining them, chastising them, and showing them their true need of the future spiritual king, the Messiah, who they would get a better picture of in the next king, David. But he was still a man, and his life would also point to the future Savior as one who did have a repentant heart. But see, some things, this is the message of the gospel that God wants to get through to our hearts. Then you're sitting there going, wait a minute. On the one hand, Saul is set apart in God's mercy to deliver Israel from many Philistine intrusions, and he did. But on the other hand, Saul is the worldly king that Israel asked for and would get, and therefore they would learn once again about setting someone else up besides the Lord as the one they look to ultimately for deliverance, etc. In one sense, then, God shows his mercy both ways by doing what is necessary to get his people's attention and showing them how very much they need the Savior and coming Messiah. Have you ever prayed that for anyone? You talk about scary. It shouldn't be, but it is. You love somebody. You care about somebody with all your heart. God, I ask that you do whatever it takes to break them, to see who you are. Can you trust God that much? Is he really faithful? See, that shows that you really know what's important and you're willing to ask God to do that in someone's heart that you love. Knowing what? Knowing that that person maybe because you're like that too, we'll have to go through who knows what in order to be rid of themselves to look to see and see their need of a Savior. The rest of chapter 9 takes us through how Samuel brought Saul along in his recognition that there was something extraordinary going on right in front of Saul's face that he didn't see. And it took a while. Saul is very surprised when the man he asked directions from in verse 18 then identified himself as the seer, Samuel. We already should have been wondering, how could it be that Saul didn't ever even seem to know anything about Samuel, which tells you a lot about him. It was his servant who said, oh, there's this guy that lives right here. This is his town. And he's a prophet. 
Maybe he could tell us where the donkeys are. How come Samuel didn't know that? Because we've already studied and seen the passage in previous chapter that said all of Israel listened to Samuel's word because they knew it was from God. And none of his words fell to the ground. But Samuel, where was he? Well, it shows us where his heart is, and it's not with God. He certainly demonstrates by this arrogance arrogance and ignorance that his priorities are not in the spiritual realm at all. He may look the part, he may act the part, but he is not the part. And God still uses him in his redemptive plan for the purposes that he outlines right here that we're going to see. Then Samuel tells Saul to come with him to the sacrifice and a meal and an overnight stay, ending up with an early morning face-to-face about what this is all about. Oh, and your donkeys have been found, he said. Then Samuel immediately asked him a question that blows Saul's mind. The best translation of this goes, goes like this. This is a hard thing to make it come out right in English. And who does all Israel desire but you, Saul, and all your family? That question is in verse 20. And the English Standard Version says, For whom is all that is desirable in Israel? And you can kind of get that meaning from this. But what he's saying is this. And who does all Israel desire but you, Saul, and your family? And he's going, what? What do you mean all of Israel desires me? And Saul ends up asking then, as we see, why, why? Have you spoken to me like this? See, he still doesn't get what's going on. The dinner begins, and Saul is seated at the place of honor. Surprise, surprise. He just met this guy. Why am I sitting in the place of honor? The cook brings out choice meat, and he finds out that Samuel had told the cook to prepare it and set it aside until he got there because he knew he was coming because God told him he was. Head of table, choice meat. And then Samuel provided him with a place to sleep that night on his roof, which as you can imagine in the Middle East is sort of the cool place to sleep at night, literally. And then the next morning, a private meeting was about to begin where he would let him know and he would actually anoint him, which is starting to catch on. Now, we're gonna, we, we should say right here as well that Samuel is doing what? How is Samuel carrying out what God told him to do about this man? Faithfully. And he's honoring him. He's trusting that God knows what he's doing. 
And remember, there's a lot left that we're going to find out that Samuel does. Samuel is the one who pointed out sin in other people's lives. The stage is now set for the people of Israel's kings to begin. Our next time in 1 Samuel, we'll, we'll continue starting in first one of chapter 10 with the last of those four parts concerning how Saul became Israel's first king. We've looked at providence. Next will be the assurance that God and Samuel give him that God has called him into this office. Would you need it if you came from a lowly tribe, even if your father was wealthy and you had no clue? Yes. He's also equipped to do what God called him to do, to be the deliverer in those days of crisis. But then we see when he does get back home, he conceals what's happened. All he tells his uncle who asks him is, hey, I'm glad the donkeys are back. He doesn't tell him anything about what happened with Samuel and being anointed. Interesting fellow. God's providence. He provides and sustains his people. And he's very creative at how he does it. Let's bow for our word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for your constant deliverance and faithfulness you know what we need and you provide for the deepest need that we have the need to know you that we need forgiveness in Christ the Savior thank you that you remind us of this often when we get off track Lord we we pray as your people today that we could see the big picture of why we're really here. How satisfying our souls are as we get to know you, your purposes, and what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, the Lord, your Son, whom you sent to save. Oh God, open the eyes of our hearts to see and understand And we do pray that you would pour out your spirit upon our land to bring true revival in people's hearts. And God, we make ourselves available to be the ones to proclaim the truth, to see beyond the ordinary common things of our day-to-day existence, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are working. Father, we we love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. You're dismissed until 6.30 when you need to try to come back.